This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 134, the final part of the story about Frank Hart, who was the Jackie Robinson of the 19th century ultra running. He broke the color barrier and fought racism with his feet and sometimes with his fists. This multi-part series is a slimmed-down version of Hart's amazing life. To read the entire history, get my new book on Amazon, Frank Hart, the first black ultra-running star. Search for Frank Hart, H-A-R-T, on Amazon. And now a word from our sponsors. My fourth book in the ultra-running history series is now available on Amazon. Running 100 Miles Part 1, A History. I cover the history of 100 milers from 1729 to 1960. More than 1,000 people ran or walked 100 miles within 24 hours before 1960. I share many tales of these legendary people and the races that took place. Get my new book on Amazon, Running 100 Miles Part 1, A History. We now return to your regular programming. By late 1892, many of the original six-day professional pedestrians had left the sport, using their winnings to establish other careers, some of them pursuing illegal activities. Frank Hart had another terrible health scare during a six-day race in Wisconsin, News had spread across the country that his running days were finally over, that he, quote, will never be seen on the track again. But running professionally had been a part of his life for 14 years. At the age of 36, now referred to as an old pedestrian, Hart was determined to continue to compete and prove his doubters wrong. Hart recovered and showed up in St. Louis, for Professor Clark's six-day tournament held on December 19th through the 24th, 1892 at the Natatorium, which was a swimming and gymnasium hall. People were astonished to see him a week before the race. It was reported, Frank Hart, the famous colored ped, arrived in the city yesterday, a living contradiction to the rumors that had been circulating about his ill health. He denies that he coughed up a lung and part of his liver. He trained with other competitors at the natatorium and was seen reeling off mile after mile. He indeed started the race and looked good in the field of 15 runners. A new lease on life appears to have been meted out to the old-time colored pedestrian. Hart reached 100 miles on the first day, but then another alarming health scare took place. He acted like a maniac while covering the last mile, but returned to sensibility and resumed the race. He picked up a stool-bottom chair, which was at the edge of the track, walked in front of the music stand, and threw it at the pianist with all his might. The musician dodged it, and the police came quickly. They knew Hart had no reason in the world for acting as he did, and thought he had gone daft. Hart emphasized his feeling himself by yelling more than a dozen times in a perfect frenzy. You want to run a man crazy! He was finally pacified and resumed his journey around the ring. Hart reached 128 miles during the first day, 
soon took the lead and had a great battle with Gus Guillermo of California on day three. Frank Hart is as graceful as of old and came in for his proportion of the liberal applause. He soon looked haggard. Frank Hart is virtually out of the race, although he occasionally appears upon the track. His limbs were swollen to nearly twice his natural size, his eyeballs were sunken deeply within their sockets, and the pedal extremities, which had traveled so many miles, were ornamented by large blood blisters. The colored champion will probably never again be seen in a race of this description, as he realizes that the time is at hand when he must acknowledge his younger superiors. On day five, he was rolling again, but far behind. In the past, he would always quit in these circumstances, but he pressed on. He finished with 425 miles in sixth place, enough to have a share of the prizes. But because of poor attendance, he did not win much. At least he proved to America that he was not dead yet, and his running career was continuing. Hart and other six-day pedestrians went into serious retirement from competition in 1893. There were only a few six-day races held that year, and Hart did not enter any of them. Some pedestrian historians have written that the sport was a passing fad, that the public had lost interest, or that cycling pushed it aside. This was not entirely true. They failed to understand what truly caused the sport to pause for several years. This multi-year pause was caused by the Panic of 1893, which caused a deep economic depression across America. It was the worst economic depression that the United States had ever seen. The stock market crashed, thousands of businesses went bankrupt, the unemployment rate hit 20%, there were soup lines and an army of homeless scattered throughout the country. People rushed to withdraw their money from banks and a credit crunch rippled through the economy. 500 banks closed and about 15,000 businesses failed. The unemployment rate was severe in states that had hosted six-day races, 25% in Pennsylvania, 35% in New York, and 43% unemployment in Michigan. The wealthy sports promoters could no longer take the risk of putting on a race that was sure to lose money. Hart again announced his running retirement, but later in 1894 ran a short two-mile race against the legend Daniel O'Leary and won. The six-day sport took a rest, and so did Hart. Because of the Depression, from 1893 to 1897, there were only eight six-day races held in America during those years. In 1895, since he could no longer find races to run, he started to go into the athletic training profession and trained bicycle riders with ALS Cycle Club of Chicago. The early cycling sport was a white-dominant sport, mostly participated in by the middle and upper class. The League of American Wheelmen implemented policies that made it hard for non-whites to enter the sport. Historian Jesse Gant explained, Critics were deeply concerned that the bicycle would afford greater mobility and political power. The League thus stepped up its exclusionary efforts after 1893. These labors culminated in a ban on African-American bicycling following a League meeting in Louisville, Kentucky in 1894. With ultra-running, Hart had been used to inclusiveness. 
he could participate in races despite being black. But as he entered the cycling sport in 1895, he saw alarming racist attitudes and he was not shy in speaking out against them. He was bold and believed that the same principles seen in ultra-running or pedestrianism should exist in cycling. He pointed out that in the East, every club had a black trainer, but that was not the case in the Midwest. He said, Bicycling as it is now conducted is the most narrow and prejudiced of any of the popular sport in the country. All that is needed is for a few men with means who have the backbone to make this sport a truly American one. There has always been a color prejudice toward colored men entering any of the sports in this country. In 1896, a devastating landmark ruling was made by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Plessy v. Ferguson case, ruling that racial segregation was legal. Jim Crow laws sprang up, and sports segregation laws and rules would make it much harder for future black runners to be fully accepted in the sport. In the years to come, attitudes would reappear that blacks lacked the ability to run long distances and should not compete against whites. In 1896, Hart continued to live in Chicago, Illinois, and was training members of the cycling club in Chicago, with some good success achieved by his riders. While he had no true skill in riding, he was able to teach endurance training and how to succeed in racing for multiple days. At the end of 1896, Hart returned to the natatorium in St. Louis to compete in a strict heel-toe six-day walking match, 12 hours per day. He assumed command from the start and never lost first place. He won by a few laps with 303 miles. Hart proved himself to be one of the best things that ever happened in the six-day walking match. But compared to running, biking, or roller skating, strict heel-toe walking matches were no longer very popular. The race is too slow and uneventful to suit the populace of today. It is necessary now to satisfy the public taste to travel fast and far. Otherwise, the affair ends in the same financial disaster as the match at the natatorium. Walking only 12 hours a day did not wear them out so much that they could not recuperate. Spectators wanted to see race contests that involved suffering and crashes. In 1897, Hart, now in his early 40s, was employed as a trainer for the Bankers Athletic Club in Chicago, Illinois, which was established in 1896 for bank clerks, with an initial membership of 700. He trained both runners and cyclists on the south side of Chicago on the club's grounds with a track, baseball diamond, and grandstands. It became known as Bankers Field and was near the future site of Kaminsky Park, home of the Chicago White Sox. During the summer of 1897, Hart oversaw the outdoor cycling meets organized by the club on their new grounds. He was also employed as the groundskeeper for the baseball diamond. Finally, he had a nice steady job that he enjoyed. At the end of the year, he was appointed secretary of the club. Unfortunately, the Bankers Athletic Club folded in late 1898. The lease for their headquarters and gym became too expensive and athletics were abandoned. Frank Hart, who had been the trainer of the club, 
and had carefully nursed it through its brief career, was the only mourner at the club rooms yesterday. He was made custodian of the club's furniture until it is disposed of at either private or public sale. The reason for the closing was because of a lack of interest. Some members were dissatisfied because no buffet was conducted in the club. Others dropped out because the club would not admit to membership others beside bank clerks. On November 19, 1898, Hart's wife Mary died at the age of 42 of tuberculosis in Boston. He had not lived with her for years. She had died on the property where they had lived since their marriage. Today, a parking garage for the Massachusetts General Hospital stands there. With Hart living in Chicago and staying away from Boston for multiple years, where were his children now that his wife was dead? In June 1900, his son Frank S. Hart was 23, still living at the North Anderson Street home in Boston, with his younger sister, Adelaide Hart, age 17, a dressmaker. Also in the home was their aunt and some cousins, relatives of their late mother. Frank Jr. was working as a museum attendant. On July 30th, 1900, Hart married again to a widow, Cora Posey Thomas, age 42 from Salt Lake City, Utah. He evidently met her while judging a cycling meet at the Salt Palace Saucer Track on 9th South between State and Main Street. Cycling promoters had constructed a unique track with 43-degree banked curves on an oval track eight laps to a mile. Cyclists from around the country flocked to race on it and try to break world records on the extremely fast track. Hart took some of his trainees there to compete in early July. Hart and Cora's courtship was fast, just a few weeks. They were married in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Cora was a hairdresser who had been born in Indiana, and it was her second marriage. A year later, he competed again, this time in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at the Industrial Hall on March 11, 1901. Six-day races had experienced a good resurgence in Pennsylvania. 24 runners started on the 17 laps to a mile track. Still in great condition, Hart stayed with the leaders and approached 200 miles on day two, but suffered from sleep deprivation. Hart several times staggered around the railing, opening his eyes in surprise, and then plodded sleepily on. The leader was John Glick, a weaver from Germantown, Pennsylvania. He would stagger many times into the wrong hut and started to go cranky. Music may have charms for the savage beast, but John Glick is not built that way. The sound of the hand organ playing increases his flightiness, and last night he threatened to throw the organ out the window. Hart struggled on the last day, logging a few miles, but was renewed the next day and went around the track at a lively clip, just hoping to finish well. He was 138 miles behind the leader, but still determined and finished in 8th place with 314 miles. He won $90. Just before the end of the race, Hart kindly wheeled Peter Hegelman, a German-American from New York City, around the track on a hand chair 
to bring attention to him. The doctors would not let Hegelman continue because he was, quote, a little bit gone in his mind. A hat was passed around to collect something for him. Hart came out of this race with a badly sprained ankle with rheumatism. A month later, Hart was competing again, this time in Columbus, Ohio. Hart again did well, finishing with 290 miles. In October 1901, he went to compete in Philadelphia and said, As I have trained thoroughly and conscientiously for this race, and I never felt better and stronger in my life, I am willing to wager any part of $1,000 that I will cover a greater number of miles than any other named individual in the race. There were 40 starters in the massive race, and Hart hung with the leaders. But by day three, he was well down the standings with 207 miles and dropped out the next day. In November 1901, Hart took on the responsibility to train or handle James Dean, a stenographer from Boston, Massachusetts. He was another talented black pedestrian who had been beating Hart in recent races. Hart served as Dean's trainer at the six-day race in Pittsburgh's old city hall. During the race, Dean suddenly accused Hart and his team of attempting to poison him. Don't poison me. Don't you dare poison me. And then would not accept food from them unless it was first tasted by someone to prove that it wasn't poisoned. After he reached 412 miles on the last day of his six-day race, he was in a, quote, daffy condition and he was taken to the hospital. He then escaped his attendants while in the bathroom, went through an open window, and down a fire escape. A search was at once instituted and kept up for several hours without finding any trace of the missing racer. He was found wandering the streets and was taken to the police station. His clothing was covered with blood, the result of a hemorrhage from his nose. He was ragged and covered with dirt. He was wholly irrational and babbled meaninglessly. Hart soon arrived and took the, quote, demented man to St. Francis Hospital. It is said that Dean was completely broken down from his exertions in the race. He will probably recover after rest and treatment. After another day in the hospital, Dean recovered well, and two months later was again competing in a six-day race. Hart's last six-day race of his career came March 31, 1902, at Detroit, Michigan, in the Light Guard Armory. It was a great disappointment. He quit on the first day with only 67 miles because of stomach issues. On the next day, the race was stopped because of lack of funds. Later in the week, he took part in short exhibition races on the track to raise funds for runners to return home. Hart controlled how the purses would be dealt out. Peter Golden lodged a protest. Hot words passed between Golden and Hart, and after the men had prepared themselves for the street, they came together in the armory. They were ordered from the premises and were about to continue the mill on the outside when friends of both men interfered. All this was over just a few dollars. With that, Hart disappeared from competing in the sport at the age of 46. He continued to train athletes. Four years later, in 1906, it was reported that Hart, age 50, was penniless 
suffered from tuberculosis, and living in Colorado for his health. Sad news spread across the country that he was dying. He was dependent on his friends for all his needs. On September 17, 1908, Frank Hart died at the age of 52 in his home in Chicago, Illinois, due to an attack of pneumonia. The funeral will be held under the auspices of the Lodge of the Colored Knights of Pythias, of which he was a member. He was buried under his given name, Frank E. Hitchborn, on September 22, 1908, in Mount Glenwood Cemetery in Glenwood, Illinois, likely in an unmarked pauper grave. His occupation was listed as athletic trainer. Ironically, on his death record, his race was listed as white. His death, at first, was not widely publicized, only mentioned in Racine, Wisconsin. Nearly five months later, a detailed article was finally published about his death, entitled, Once Famous, But Died Obscure. Frank Hart, one of the wonders of the cinder path, died a short time ago in Chicago with no mention in any paper except that a pauper had passed away and had been buried by charity. It was doubtful if his wife and two children who lived in Philadelphia had been notified. Fellow pedestrian and trainer of cyclists, Henry O. Messier of Milwaukee, Wisconsin wrote, He died penniless in Chicago, and from what I hear, his friends buried him. Hart met and defeated the best six-day go-as-you-please men of the world and won five championship belts. Hart was a high liver and a good spender. During the last two years, he lived on the charity of his friends in Chicago. Frank Hart was truly one of the greatest American ultra-runners of the 19th century. He made it possible for many black runners in his era to compete as well. He was a hero and an idol. Running was certainly his entire life, but he had serious flaws. His drive for fame and fortune came at the expense of his family and many friends who tried to help him, but were pushed away. He was determined to excel and sought the recognition he deserved, but often was not given enough respect because he was black. Hart competed in at least 113 ultras during his career that spanned from 1879 to 1902, 23 years. He reached 100 miles in about 80 races. In most of those races, he went much further than 100 miles. The six-day race was his favorite event, and he took part in at least 64 six-day races during his lifetime. He totaled at least 26,000 miles during his races, and probably had five times those miles in training. While most Americans have never heard of Frank Hart before, he remains one of the first nationally famous black athletes in America, the Jackie Robinson of the 19th century ultra-running or pedestrianism. As Jim Crow laws and more bigotry took hold in the 20th century, all sports experienced a setback in inclusiveness. There were some exceptions. In 1928, Charles C. Pyle allowed five black ultra-runners to compete in the race across America nicknamed the Bunyan Derby. It wasn't until the 1950s that Ted Corbett of New York City again crossed that racial barrier and became the father of American long-distance running in the modern era. 
but Frank Hart was truly the first black famous ultra runner in history. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs> <laughs>